welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Welcome, everybody, to another DIV podcast. And today, we are joined by two amazing guys who are going to talk to us about physical disability from a very personal perspective. One was born with a physical disability and one became disabled in adulthood. Just as a bit of a backdrop, though, under the Equality Act of 2010, a physical disability is defined as a limitation on a person's physical functioning, mobility, dexterity or stamina. That has a substantial and long-term negative effect on an individual's ability to do normal daily activities. According to the World Bank, 1 billion people, or 15% of the world's population, have some form of disability, and the barriers to opportunity they face often hold them back more than their physical impairment. There are 14.6 million disabled people in the UK. 9% of children are disabled. 21% of working-age adults are disabled. 42% of pension-age adults are disabled. More than 4.7 million disabled people are in employment. However, the employment rate of disabled people is 53%, compared to 82% of non-disabled people, giving us a disability employment gap of 29%. The total spending power of families with at least one disabled person, is estimated at £274 billion a year. According to Scope, one in three disabled people feel there is a lot of prejudice, and one in three people see disabled people as being less productive than non-disabled people. So those are stats, and those are quite dry, but we're going to be talking to two men who have physical disabilities, who work in our industry, who are doing very well and are amazing. And uh, they're going to tell you their story and they're going to teach us all how we can react better to people with physical disability, engage better with them, and in fact, do a better job all around as an industry. Because from a personal perspective, I just don't think we're doing well enough. And it's a journey we've started, but we want to carry on with. So they're both called Lee. We have Lee Albino, who for this podcast is going to be known as Bino, who's the Regional Development Manager for Shawbrook Bank, and Lee Brewer, who is a director at the giant distributor Connells. So let's kick off with Lee. Lee, tell us about your disability and how it affected you in early life. Yeah, I was born with something called Simbrachydactyly, which is a bit of a mouthful. But it is essentially it's a condition that affects one in 32,000 births. So not as rare as you might think. And the actual, I suppose, physicality of it is where you're born without 
one hand or an impairment of your fingers with on that hand. So from my perspective, I was born without my right hand, which affects fewer births than if you're born without your left hand, which is unfortunate because my brain tells me that I'm right-handed. So therefore, at school and things like that, it was actually quite difficult to pick up the general things of writing clearly. So at school, my teachers would often say that Lee couldn't really be bothered with his homework or he tries to rush things. In actual fact, my brain was telling me that I was right-handed while all the time I was writing with my left hand. Um, so that was clearly a struggle. Such things as just your basic day-to-day -day tasks as doing your laces, riding a bike, because my balance was never really the same uh, as every other child. Um, obviously, children at school didn't make things easy for you. You would get called different names along the way, um, which was always fun. And you often look back and, and laugh about it. But I, I suppose one of the things that often struck me as a child when I looked around the school was I felt like I was the only one that was different. Also, I could see, you know, looking back now all those years, I can probably see that there were other people in that school with some form of disability, although it wasn't physical and noticeable to the eye, um, however mine was. So, yeah, I think being at school was a challenging time. It was definitely character building. And I'm sure we'll go on later to talk about what then transpired after school through my, my job hunt and then ultimately the career that I've ended up in. Thank you, Lee. It's fascinating, isn't it, with your brain telling you that you're right-handed and you haven't actually got a right hand to use. I can only begin to imagine, I mean, after we spoke before, I tried to do something with my left hand, anything, even texting, and I found it really uncomfortable. So that was a huge challenge that you faced there. So Bino, you weren't born physically disabled. Just if you don't mind, take us through your story, because I know it's very emotional and, you know, you've told us before, but I think it's really important that people get a sense of, of what happened to you. Yes, certainly. So I had my right leg amputated back in March 19 and sort of a bit of the journey of that was in sort of early 2018. I was playing football and I got injured by one of my mates where it was actually my knee was giving me a bit of grief. So sort of fast forward along after I've given it a bit of a break and a rest, tried playing football again and it just wasn't right. So I went and saw um, a bit of a knee specialist really who, after an MRI scan of sort of my leg, but just above my knee, showed that was an actual issue of my patella. So a bit of a relief. And I did a patella realignment operation sort of in the summer of 2018. And, yeah, it was part of the rehab process, went to physio. And physio just wasn't getting any easier at all, really, and couldn't know why. So continued to go back to the doctor's explain the situations, the symptoms, and they put me on medication just to try and calm it down and just basically keep it from being less painful. But I noticed it going, the pain really being more with my thigh, which I thought was quite unusual because I had a knee injury. <laughs> so um, it was like, so I didn't quite understand what was going on. And around Christmas, it was unbearable. It's like, I was having night sweats, all these kind of symptoms where the GP continued to say, well, look, let's just keep you on the medication and keep on the physiopath. And then around into early 19, February in particular, I started noticing like lumps in my thigh, which we thought were like hematomas. So the physio worked on them, went back to the GP again. They said, well, it seems like the physio is on top of it. Let's see how that works. And then in early March, I dropped my phone on the floor in physio and went to go and grab that phone. I thought, I know, I'm going to put a bit of pressure on my right leg. 
just to sort of build it up the strength, you know, just continue to do that, what he's been telling me. And I had three pops and I collapsed to the floor and it was my, turned out to be my leg broken, gowny and physio, which still does make me laugh. Um, to be honest, um, if you're going to do it anywhere, do it either there or <laughs> GPs or the you know, hospital. So it wasn't, I thought it could be in worse places, put it that way. Got rushed to hospital and from there really number of scans and leg was painful and found out kept in for a couple of nights before being transferred to a specialist orthopedic hospital. And that's where I kind of thought, right, that doesn't sound great. You know, obviously there's something really, you know, I've broken my leg awkwardly and I found out that my femur had broke which I thought was a bit unusual because it is like those things just don't break on its own. It's normally something a bit more severe. And we found out that after a number of scans in the orthopedic hospital, it emptied out about a 15 centimetre diameter tumour that emptied from my bone. So my leg was massively swollen. I've always had quite chunky legs, but this was the right one was particularly impressive with size. And the thing that they wanted to do right away was soon as was get a biopsy, make sure I'm all right. And Sort of after like five, six days of worrying, but in between chatting, you know, hopefully you're going to be all right. We don't know what it could be, so we're not going to speculate. And it turned out that the results showed that I had osteosarcoma, which is a form of bone cancer, which was a bit of a shock. We just thought, yeah, it was a bit of a tumour, we can remove it and, you know, your femur would back on. We'll just uh, get <laughs> naturally repair with assistance. And I think it left everyone in the room shocked, even the specialists, the doctors, because it just doesn't happen to someone that kind of cancer really at my age. It's very, very rare. And I was presented with a couple of options of keeping your leg, which was actually my natural default thing to do until you go through the risks and the obvious rewards keep keeping your leg. But the risk of that, uh, should we say, just weren't really on my side. I'm a bit of a, I don't mind a little bit of a flutter, but I wasn't really going to gamble with life away. And it seemed like the only way I could actually survive and live is to actually have my leg amputated, which was the kind of the way that they wanted me to go. And thankfully I did. So within about three or four days, I had my leg amputated and then it was all part of the rehab and knowing what's next. And that was really then in an intense bout of chemotherapy, even though they thought removing the leg at the hip would get rid of the cancer. They could never be so sure. So I went through about a year's worth of chemotherapy, which was a roller coaster. So at this time, I was probably about 39. So it was quite a challenge. And finishing chemotherapy then, I didn't, without going into loads of detail, I had enough of the stuff, which I wouldn't wish upon anyone. And I then finished chemotherapy a week before we went into lockdown with the COVID outbreak in March 2020. So it really gave me a bit of a double hit, really, with the excitement of finishing chemo, thinking, great, I can sort of start my life again and carry on, learn to walk, get a prosthetic leg, and then to be told that actually you're on lockdown, you're shielding yourself, because it takes so, you know, it was taking me quite some time to recover from chemotherapy, and it was a bit of a double hit of recovery, really of getting used to a, a new situation, but indoors. So that's a little bit about what happened to me, really. So at 39, just um, waiting, really, <laughs> to be able to start my life whilst going through the COVID lockdown, which everyone else had all their troubles with as well, which we all know wasn't easy. It's really sad, but you're such an ebullient character and you've got so much joy even in your voice. But it must have been mentally so difficult because you were so full of sort of life and playing football and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it was. It was interesting. I love my job, still do, but love my job. And I'd like to think I'm a pretty easygoing person, always glass half full. Luckily, I think I still am. But certainly it can shake you. 
And it's one of those things I've learned, like there's some stuff you just can't control. And from what I was told, you can't control the type of cancer I had. There's not enough research about it. it it's just the fact that I was simply unlucky to be told that basically it's more of a, a child's teenager's cancer. And then a lot of people go in, typical to you, for you to get a teenager's disease because you're a child at heart, really. <laughs> so it, it, it still does make me laugh now. But for me, it's just about like pushing on and trying to get to a new normal as quickly as possible. So, Lee, going back to you, so what happened to you and what you, did you feel your job prospects were? So when you finished school, can you pick up your story from there to the fact that you're one of the senior people at possibly the biggest and most vibrant distributor in the country? I won't pick up with exactly how my prospects looked after I finished school because nobody wants to hear what my headmaster told me. I was told by my school headmaster at the time I wasn't allowed back to sick form and I probably would struggle later in life. So that was interesting and more than anything, it probably just pushed me on. It made me a little bit more determined just to prove him wrong. Weirdly, I wanted to get into sales and where I ended up first is, a, is an interesting one, but I'll tell you that in a moment. I went for my very, very first job interview at a car sales place and this was probably my first exposure to what a disability in the workplace really was and probably the biggest setback that I had at that moment in my life. So I went for this interview, explained you know, who I was, what I was about. Obviously, I had a driving license, but I only have an automatic driving license. I can't drive a manual car. I can only drive an automatic car. Because of that, they told me that it wasn't viable for me to do the job. Obviously, me being 18 years old, I didn't know that there was policies that were in place where you are able to make reasonable adaptions in the workplace. I was none the wiser to any of that at that moment in time. So off I trotted, town between my legs, feeling really sorry for myself. And I thought to myself, well, if they won't recruit me, then none of the other car sales people will recruit me. So I gave up my dream of selling cars. I, funny enough, ended up as a hod carrier, believe it or not. The irony of not being able to drive cars, but become a hod carrier with one hand, which incidentally, even back then, they had adaptions for people with one hand. So there was these clips that you could use that held the bricks together as opposed to having to have the hod on your shoulder, which I thought was great. And the person that employed me at the time was kind enough to tell me about that and go and purchase them. So that was great. And it was a really enjoyable six months of my life. But winter came and it got a bit cold and I didn't really want to be a builder in the winter. It was great in summer but not particularly nice in winter. So I ended up interviewing with my now company, the Connells Group. They were kind enough to give me the opportunity to come in as an estate agent, training and learning uh, to become a mortgage consultant down the line. And I think what I then faced for the very first time was dealing with public. And I suppose I hadn't really thought through how challenging I would find that because every client meeting you interact with, you have to shake their hand. Now, as we know, a large percentage of the general public are right-handed. As we've already established today, I am, but I'm just missing one. So it was quite unnervy for me at the age of 19 years old, meeting the 25, 30, 40-year-old people with one hand, having to introduce myself and always had to be the first one to say hello and hold your left hand out in the hope they wouldn't look at you peculiarly and you would just think, please shake my left hand. Many times people would put their right hand out and it would be a very awkward shake and the whole meeting would start quite awkwardly. I then would sit there quite uncomfortable if that happened and I'd sit there with my arm underneath the desk, rarely would you know bring it out in sight because I'd built up that anxious anxiety about it, I suppose, from that first interaction. But once I got in the flow of things, it was all okay. 
And I suppose if we fast forward a number of years, it hadn't held me back because I became the top broker in my division. And where my company were really good actually, there was a director at the time who's now retired who called me prior to the event where I was going to be collecting my award. And he rings me and he says, Lee, I just want to let you know, you know you've won something. You will be coming up on stage. We will be handing you a certificate, an envelope, a trophy, and a bottle of champagne. And I'm thinking to myself already, okay, I could probably handle two of those things. He said, but don't worry. I'm going to shake your left hand. I'll hold this. I'll hold that. All you need to hold is the certificate and the trophy. And then we'll walk back to the table with you and obviously, you know, put stuff on the table, which I thought you could have looked at in two ways. You could have looked at that as I'll be fine. I'll, I'll hold everything and, and I'll make it work. I'll style it out. But you could look at it as this guy was, he was a great guy actually. And, and he always thought of the detail, very, very, very small details. He always think about them. His name was Simon, Simon Arns. And he called me and as I say, I'll never forget that moment. And I thought to myself, that is the level of detail, the level of care that I wanted to be able to have if I ever became a manager later in life, which ultimately I did. I wanted to be able to replicate that and be in that level of detail because it was really nice. It was really settling to know that it wouldn't be like this big parade of got all this stuff in my arms and people looking at me thinking, oh, look, look at these. I didn't know that. He's only got one hand, etc. So it was a really key moment in my career within the group. And it really made me feel really well supported, looked after at that moment in time. And, and that will always stick with me, that moment. It is fascinating. Awards are like that. I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about them later. But we specifically go out of our way to make sure anybody either giving out any of our awards or receiving one of our awards, if they have any special requirements or anything they want to tell us, whether they're dyslexic and they won't be able to read out the winners or they have any physical or mental disabilities, they don't like lights or anything, we now make sure that we send out emails in writing to ask, proactively ask if, any, if there's any special requirements they're going to be needing. And I think you know, that was almost inspired by your story and one from Tracy Burton. So, Bina, let's go back to you. So, lockdown, quite horrible. When did you go back to work? Did you go back to work in lockdown? And when you did go back to work, what was that like? How were your employers? Well, I went back to work, started thinking about it. Think, obviously, finished March. I think by end of April, I was pretty bored. After all, I'd had a, a year and a bit off already of lounging around, and I was starting to feel a bit better. So I was starting to think about it end of April, early May, and I, I, I'm pretty sure I went back around end of May, early June on a phase return, and Shawbrook had been great. And if I could just sort of take back a little bit about how good Shawbrook were, as soon as he found out what happened, I had an overwhelming amount of visitors come to see me from the bank, from friends who I've worked with for years. Like I've been at the bank now just shy of 10 years. But that time I was pretty much long serving really up to what's now, you know, sort of Exco level where Emma came to see me as well. And just the people around there just reassuring me that we've got your back and there will be something waiting for you, which was probably my biggest concern about when being told you're going to lose your leg. Mine was more like, right, sort of, I wasn't upset about losing my leg. It was actually, I'm going to pay the bills. How can I continue to work? I love driving. And to have your right leg amputated, you know, if you're going to have one, you want to try and, I think you probably want to try and keep that one. That was quite handy because I'm heavily left-footed. So I can kick a ball at least. So a lot of my sort of journey started back then with that reassurance. And when I started engaging with the bank, the HR level, it was more like having a chat 
they use their third party suppliers to go through a bit of questions you know what do i need to come back to do the job in particular in covid so it was like more like having work desktop assessments do i need anything particular and it was all managed very professionally with sure brought using the third parties um so having the, the correct desk a chair because i can be known to sit down quite a bit now unfortunately so it's just making sure i've got the simple things in the right sort of comfort chair desk height needs to be moved up and down because i do like to sort of stand up and use my prosthetic leg so my desk rises with me as well so i'm not certainly sat down crouching over and moving forward to the bank with regards to events how they do things you know everyone is a part of the party no matter whether i'm in my wheelchair if i'm on my crutches and whether i'm on my prosthetic leg they've, they've just been fantastic so Shawbrook is just the place to be for this and nothing is too much of a challenge for them i think when it comes to doing my job my brokers they've been more than accommodating you know if needs be well we know we've got some stairs Bino. Let's meet in the hotel round the corner or the coffee shop round there. Let's make it as comfortable for you as possible. Or if you want to come in the office, you're more than welcome. And I do flick between the both. Sometimes I'll hop up the stairs or use my prosthetic leg to get a bit of training and walk up some stairs. Or sometimes I will take the easy way out because I've just had a mammoth physio session the day before on my leg. And like speaking of that, you know, I do want to learn to walk. Luckily, I'm doing pretty well, like to think. So I've just been given a new leg in the last month, which is like a microprocessor leg. So where the, the knee talks to your phone and things like that via Bluetooth. I've learned so much about that. It's, it's absolutely unreal. But the bank have said it's never a problem for you to get, this is the way I joke about it, is to get back on two feet do what you need to do. And that's the kind of support I get. So I have just so much praise for them. They've been great. And that really should be the benchmark for anybody working in our industry as an expectation from their employers. I think that people should take note of that, whether they are the employers or whether they are suffering, God forbid, uh, anything like you have been. So Lee, going back to you. So you won the award, you're now a senior person. What challenges does the leadership role have with somebody with a physical disability? So how do you manage people with having one hand? Do you get it out of the way quickly with people that are actually reporting to you? And so here it is, right? Ignore it. Let's just carry on. What do you do in that leadership role? It can be one of the best kept secrets for a while, if I'm honest with you. There are people that have worked with me for six months, seven months, and then turned around and gone, Oh my God, I never realised, which is great because obviously what I'm doing to hide is working. But no, it, it kind of starts with the interview process because anybody that joins the team, I'll always want to interview them, which it almost takes me back to the days of when I was a broker. And I, it's almost that, oh, here we go again, sat, you know, having an interaction with the public that I've never met before. I'm going to have to go through the whole handshake thing again. I'm going to have to relive all of that. And it does just take me back to a time and a place which was always very uncomfortable for me. It, it always does take me back to that place. But that said, I think I've owned that a lot more recently, not for very long. And I'll admit that, you know, I'm, I'm 40 years old, just turned 40. And I haven't really owned this for a very, very, very long time in my life. And actually, when I came to speak at your DIFF event, that was the first time I'd publicly spoken about it but then subsequently posted about it. 
So there probably still will be people that work in my organization that didn't know that about me, that now know that about me. And I think that's been something that's really, really helped me overcome that. And I do notice myself walking down the street now and I'm a little bit freer about it. I don't always feel that I have to have it in my pocket and hide it away and things like that. But in terms of managing the people that I work with, my close team in terms of the managers that report directly to me, yeah, it's like second nature. You know, they'll often say, I don't even think of you as having one hand. I just think of you as Lee. And that's great. But I suppose there are times when people just think of you as that person. They forget that sometimes things could be difficult for you. So you may have won an event or whatever it may be. And, and I think I raised this at the dip event. The reward necessarily isn't always perfect and inclusive. So, oh, yeah, let's go and play a round of golf. Well, that's great. I mean, I can, I say play golf. Play golf is a very loose term. I can lose balls. That's one thing I'm good at. But it wouldn't necessarily be my first go-to, or it could be go-karting, or if there's anything where you have to use both hands at the same time, if you've got to change gears, etc. You're thinking to yourself, I really appreciate that you forgot, but at the same time, I now have to make you aware I can't do that because of the impairment. So there's still that element where people do forget and it's not their fault. It's not their fault. It's nice that they look at you as just another person. That's the great part, but it's the bit after that, which is then, well, this is awkward because I know you've gone to a lot of trouble of organizing this and I can't do that now. So there's some of the, I suppose, challenges that I've faced all through my career in, in leadership. It is interesting that you do want people to ignore it, but you don't want people to sort of ignore it to the point of not considering it. So it's a fine line. Do you think sometimes that comes from a good place in the fact that people just see you as Lee and that's great and you're a top bloke and fantastic and yeah, they, well, let's have Lee along to this event because he's such good fun. Well, do you think sometimes people just go, well, here's an award, here's this, blah, 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 blah. And they never think, ever consider who might win this or who might this be going to. I would love to say it's always the former. I'm a fun guy and great to have an event. But sadly, I do think that a lot of these things are considered for the masses and the majority of people. I don't think that necessarily they specifically think this could be the winner and have we considered accessibility and inclusiveness for that particular thing. So as I say, I would love that to be well thought through from every company out there in financial services, but I don't think it is at the moment. And, and that's where I fear that we've still got a long way to go in this industry. To just get back to it, do you think that sort of thing, even if it's just a sentence, just to say, will you be happy with this? Or will you be able to do this or join in with this? Whenever somebody sends out something, should be a sentence that's automatically in any invitation that's sent out. I'll give you an example. We hold something called a platinum event. So a group of people that achieve a certain result in our business, and this isn't just financial services, this is the entire group now. So estate agency lettings and everybody can go to this event. And it's it's a good day. It's a great day, actually. There's lots of different events such as clay pigeon shooting, archery, go-karting where you've got gears, monkey bars, all sorts of crazy activities for the day. It kind of keeps people away from the drink until the evening, effectively. That's what it is. But there's probably 70% of the activities I physically can't do. And there'll be a number of other people there, for whatever reason, couldn't do some of those physical activities. And again, it is designed for the masses. And I'm not saying that's wrong because what we can't do is create a huge event for the minority. But I think there has to be an allowance or 
something that's adapted for that as well. And Bino, do you go to many awards? Because I honestly can't remember the last time when I've been working in mortgages for 40 years and been going to awards for 30. I can't remember seeing more than once or twice anybody in a wheelchair at any awards. I've been to a few, actually, and it's a bit of praise for the organisation and the liaison with our sort of like marketing department with the organisers, where they do sort of ensure that we will have an individual on a wheelchair. And the great thing about it is they don't say, is that all right? They just say, there's a chap coming in a wheelchair. I think the, the reason for that is, is because I will have a couple of drinks, but I'm not one to try and be permanently sat in it. I will use my crutches to get around a little bit just to be at a level height with people just so they're not looking down, not in a horrible way, but it's just so I can be noticed, to be fair. So now I, I do go to a couple of them. It was just funny, I was thinking about Lee's story then with regards to you know that event that they do internally. And Shawbrook have just hosted a golf day, actually, in the last couple of weeks. And it was actually the first time where we did think a bit outside the box, in fairness to the team, where they did a golf day, but there was an intro to golf and a spa. So that meant I could actually be part of the activities if I wanted to, but it also meant we were able to include more of our brokers. So I think there is a bit of a journey going on because even I could have gone to the spa. Now, as it happens, I do like watching golf. Granted, for most of our brokers, it was quite poor, the quality. But I still went around in the golf buggy and dropped off refreshments, teas, coffees and snacks, of course. So there's a second career as a waiter for you, should you ever? Oh, yeah, definitely. A new term for the meals on wheels, I guess. So, gents, what more can the industry do? So, obviously, you're both working for organisations that are going well out of the way. And as I said, they should be the benchmark for what everyone should be doing. But generally speaking, in your engagement with other companies and stuff, what more could we be doing? I mean, as an example, legally, every office should be making some kind of adjustment for people with physical disabilities. And so many people, I've seen so many offices where that's not happening. So, you know, what more? Should they be doing? Uh, Bino, you must have come across some offices that are just not wheelchair friendly. Yeah, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. You know, some offices and venues will say they are wheelchair friendly or accessible, should we say. And a little bit far from it, you probably have to go a different entrance through a fire exit around the back, or you probably end up getting to an office where you have to go down about 20 ramps. But then that's the fun part, going down the ramps. Trust me, the tough gig at times is uh, wheeling back up and... <laughs> which do make it difficult. I, I think it's just that little bit of thought. If you want to include everyone, just think about that. Think about what people need. And it's not as blatant as going, what do you want? It's just like whether it's a separate document, you know, is there anything you think you need, you can fill out this document. I think there's plenty, but you, you look at the amount of support out there for organisations, small, medium, large, where they can give this kind of advice out there, but also grants to help with daft it sounds doors. Rather than a push-pull system, you could potentially get automatic doors that just open for you. Or if you see in some retail outlets, they've got the wheelchair height push button, which opens the door for you, whether it's in-swinging or coming towards your push-pull mechanism. It's just simple things like that. And I think it's acknowledgement. If it's not like, say, a wheelchair-friendly environment, it's then adapted to think if you are wanting to have a meeting, going to a place that is just not necessarily 
wheelchair friendly, but is accessible for all. And um, Lee, where do you think, because obviously both of you have not found your disabilities have affected your ability to conduct and execute your job roles, but what challenges can there be so for somebody starting like you did, Lee? What would you suggest to people who see a great CV, somebody comes in, you know, they haven't got a hand or they're in a wheelchair. What should people interviewing those people do to put them at ease? I tried to look at this from my perspective in two ways. Number one, if I was going somewhere to be interviewed, but number two, how have I changed my process since coming to the diff myself and presenting on this? So I think it's important at the moment that every employer out there, financial services and, and wider than that, just has a process. And I know we all have a recruitment process, but I think it's just looking deeper at that process and understanding, first of all, is your advert even inclusive? So would somebody read that and think, oh, I can't do that job because I would need a modification for me to do it? Or I can't do this job because I'd need that adapted. So I won't apply because I believe reading the words mean I won't be able to do it. And there has to be a way that we can somehow change the narrative of the job ads to include that we would be prepared to make adaptions and modifications for the right candidates. I think we need to be able to consider the actual interview process itself and the journey that a candidate is going to go through physically as well as mentally in terms of they've got to turn up to the interview. And I think, you know, you've just both touched on that really well there in terms of accessibility to a building. If you had to go somewhere with no lift and the office to be interviewed on was on the third floor, it's important that people are made aware of that before they're turning up for the interview um, or are they going to have to have written assessments and at that point you know should they be making people aware of their dyslexia or whatever disability they may have that could affect that and i just think it's important as part of the application process the candidate should be able to notify their potential employer of any adjustments, any needs for that particular meeting without the fear that they will be rejected for the interview or the job. I think that's really important. And having that first-hand experience when I was just fresh out of school and 18 years old, yeah, it's your first job and you take it on the chin. But if it's a career that you really want to get into and the only thing that held you back was what was perceived to be a disability or something like that, that's got to be really tough to swallow. So anything we can do as an industry to help alleviate that has to be right. And I do think a call from anybody conducting the interviews before is essential, just as you said, Barrett, to make that process for the candidate very, very, very clear very simple and really understand what and if anything needs to be done to make that process easy for the candidate. Very eloquently put, Lee. I think it's amazing. One of the journeys I've been on with DIFF is recruitment starts with the first offering of the job. And as a society, we have got to work a lot harder at making sure that that first advert, which says, here's a job that's offered, doesn't lose a huge number of potential candidates who would be brilliant to that job simply because of the way it reads and doesn't engage with them. You know, so, so much more work has got to be done by companies, leaders, HR departments to make sure that very first step has much more thought in it than simply just describing what the job is. Uh, Bino, any further thoughts that the, how we could actually improve what we do? Because again, you're customer facing, and Lee's been customer facing, we're going to have, with the spending power of £274 billion, we're going to have customers 
that have got physical disabilities and we need to welcome them or we are doing them a disservice and we're doing ourselves a disservice. Yeah, it's that the recruitment process for me was quite interesting because I always think rather than assume, I think it's just like, you know, ask questions that are relevant to the job. I think there's an element where no matter whether you're in a wheelchair user, you're losing a limb, it should be questions about relevant to the job and what that entails. I think adding anything else, actually, yeah, I think I think Lee's pretty much nailed it all, really, to be honest. I think what with regards to the Equality Act of 2010, I think that's just a good start. I think there's a lot more that can be done. That should be the sort of the minimum that any employee in any industry should take on board. That is just the start of some guidelines. That is just a good ground and to ensure that it grows further and make it a truly inclusive and diverse workforce. That includes everyone in that party. Could I just add to that, Barry? Just in terms of the recruitment process, which I think is, as I said, I think is really important. But as we've said, it, it, the job kind of starts there, doesn't it, from an employer's perspective? And I think it's fair to say every employer has a duty of care to all of their staff, not just those with disabilities at the point of recruitment. And we're all still learning in this phase in reality. And I think Bino's point and Bino's situation is absolutely, you know, it's there for all of us to see that you can join a company non-disabled, but something can happen to you partway through working for that same employer. And that employer recruited you as a non-disabled person with no need to have any accessibility changed or any modifications or any adaptions. But there are a large number of people out there here and now in our world in financial services that are suffering with some form of disability and their employer will not know about it. And the reason they will not know about it is because we don't have particularly good open dialogue about this. I think part of our duty of care, it does not stop the moment we employ somebody. It stops the moment that person leaves our business. Ultimately, our duty of care is there from the day we recruit that person and every year thereafter. And I think it would be good to see a framework change where it becomes part of an appraisal on an annual basis as an absolute minimum in terms of, you know, has anything happened in their life? Has something changed where they now need something different? Have they developed arthritis, as an example? All these things can happen to people over the course of a life. I mean, I've worked in the same business for 21 years. But nothing more than old age and maybe bad eyesight has happened so far. But that's not to say that something further won't happen to me. And it would be good if my boss sat me down on a yearly basis. Is everything still okay? Any changes, any this, anything we need to be aware of? It would be good if businesses had that open dialogue more frequently. And I think it wouldn't be such a taboo subject on that basis. Great idea. And, you know, more people should adopt that. But also, I think... Critically, I always go back to when you're mature in your career, you can say things more than when you're young. It's a matter of attitude. We've got to be able to get people just starting on their careers willing to say, I've got this issue, I need some help fixing it, without feeling if they say that, it compromises their career mobility, their career options, and they're going to be sidelined because they're going to be, oh, that person's got a problem, we'll overlook them. And I think it's really important that, that the younger people that are being employed at the moment do not fear talking about physical disabilities, mental disabilities, or any kind of ill health compromises their career options in any way. And that's a big thing to, for leadership to get across that level of confidence. And I think we've got a long way to go before we get there. Okay, well, gentlemen, thank you very much. That's been as informative as it was the last time we spoke. And I hope it's given people something to think about. And all I can say is, as, as closing remarks is just a little bit of thought goes a very, very long way. And so before you do anything, just think, 
how would everybody react to what we're offering, what we're doing, this invite or anything? And otherwise you'll miss out on people like Lee and Bino who would make any party swing. So thank you guys. Thank you very much. And we will meet next time. Cheers. If you have enjoyed this episode and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible, make sure you share with your friends and colleagues and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.